Okay, great. Everybody's gone quiet anyway. So, um, first of all, good evening to everybody. Um, I'm Christine Chinkin. I think I know pretty well everybody in the room. But anyway, I am director of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security here at the LSE. And first thing to do is to say how delighted I am to see you all for this event from Transitional to Transformative, Justice for Conflict-Related Violence Against Women. And it's being co-hosted by the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, by the Department of Gender Studies, and it's in collaboration with the Political Settlements Research Programme, uh, which is supported by DFID. And so I'm delighted to welcome especially people from those three, um, three institutions. So, a couple of formalities first, and if you could silence phones. If you want to Twitter, there's a hashtag somewhere. Uh, where is it? Down there. Uh, no, there. LSE Swain. Right. Um, <laughs> the event's being recorded, and the audio recording should be available um, online in a few days. Okay, that's the formalities over. So the event is to launch and celebrate and for you to buy um, copies of this great book. Okay, written by my colleague and friend, um, Ashlyn Swain, um, published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Um, it's an important book. It's a very uh, rich book. It's very rich in detail and analysis. It's also got a great cover. Are you going to talk about the cover? Because <laughs> it does have a great symbolic um, cover that um, you should do. Um, as the title suggests, it brings together two important subjects, um, particularly related to feminist gender studies. First of all, conflict-related violence against women. And second, the process of transition from conflict to peace through women's lived experiences of that violence and through casting an explicitly feminist lens, in particular on situations of violence against women in three sites of conflict. So Northern Ireland, Liberia, and what was then East Timor, now the independent state of Timor-Leste. So it highlights how women undergo multiple and shifting forms of violence in a continuum before, during, and after conflict, and thus moves away from the pre prevalent and reductionist assumption of conflict-related violence, meaning essentially rape as a weapon of war or rape as a tactic of war, the um, expression that we get so much in the Security Council resolutions on women, peace, and security. So the book challenges this limiting, constraining perception as well as then also challenging the legalistic understanding of processes of transitional justice that are frequently embarked upon following the supposed end of conflict and its aftermath. So the book asks in particular how such processes, the transitional justice processes, can bring about trans social transformation that's inclusive of women and that challenges the unequal social order and patriarchy, essentially. But it would be very much better if you hear about the book from Ashlyn um, than from me. Um, so Dr. Ashlyn Swain is Assistant Professor of Gender and Security at the Department of Gender Studies here at the LSE. She teaches primarily on the MSc in Women, Peace and Security. She's been a consultant on issues of gender and security to UN Women, the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs, the Trust Fund for Victims of the International Criminal Court, and many others. She's worked especially on national action plans on women, peace, and security. 
And yeah, there are several students from the MSC and Women, Peace and Security here in the room. And those of you that have been lucky enough to take those classes with Ashlyn will know that she is extraordinary at bringing her sort of lived on ground experiences into her academic scholarship and vice versa. Um, so the latter, her um, lived ground experiences, comes especially from her work with the United Nations, international non-governmental organizations in humanitarian and post-conflict recovery settings, including, for example, programs on violence against women, economic empowerment, gender equality in Darfur, um, Timor-Leste, Burundi, Kosovo. And she also works at international policy levels. So Ashlyn was going to talk about the book for 25 minutes or so. Um, she'll be then followed by Professor Christine Bell, who is um, also on the panel there. Um, Christine is Director of the Political Settlements Research Program, the DFID Program, Co-Director of the Global Justice Academy and Professor of Constitutional Law at the School of Law at the University of Edinburgh. And Christine's research and teaching interests lie in the interface between constitutional and international law, gender and conflict, and legal theory. And she has a very particular and long-term expertise in peace processes and peace agreements. And two of her many works relate explicitly to peace processes, so peace agreements and human rights, and another book called On the Law of Peace, Peace Agreements and the Lex Pacificatoria. She's also, again, active in non-governmental organizations, chairperson of the Belfast Space Committee on the Administration of Justice from 1995 to 1997, a founder member of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. And what Christine is going to do is also celebrate the book, um, very obviously, and also connect um, Ashlyn's research to further research of the Political Settlements Research Program, and in particular, its um, database on women and peace agreements. So I'll hand over first to Ashley, then to Christine. Format will be that they will just both speak, as I've said. Then we'll have a brief question and answer um, discussion between ourselves and then throw it open to you. So, Ashley. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, it's such a, a great turnout, actually. It's nerve-wracking to stand up here and speak at an event that's essentially about your own work. Um, I'm rather speaking about other people's work. I think it's much easier. Um, but thank you for coming here, and particularly given that we had to postpone the event um, last time and reschedule it now. So I really appreciate you coming um, to this time. The difference, I think, for today's date than the last time is whether myself and the bump could fit before the lectern, but I seem to be fitting so far, so hopefully um, this will all work out. Um, before I speak a little bit about the book, um, I'm going to just um, spend a few minutes um, offering some acknowledgements and thanks to people who were instrumental in the work of the book itself and then the book itself coming together and being published. Um, first of all, to say thank you to DFID um, and their funding of the Political Settlements Research Programme and of the inclusion in my book project in that programme, and to Christine, who directs the programme. Um, it was great to just to have a, you know, a, some funding to sit down and spend time thinking about these issues that you care about um, and that you want to kind of share with the world. And so it was really, really instrumental to have that funding and be able to have that time. So thank you to those from DFID who are here. Um, I originally did the 
a PhD, which was the basis for the book. I did that at Ulster University, and so a big thanks to, to the Transitional Justice Institute there where I did my PhD, and again to Christine, who was one of my supervisors, and herself, and Fanula Nealon and Brandon Hamber were my supervision team and offered um, instrumental guidance in me getting to the place that I am today. So thanks to them. Um, before, yeah, I mentioned people here, just a shout out to my mother and my aunt who are here. So thank you for coming. Hopped across the ditch and um, have been here to say hello. So thank you for coming. And then people here at the LSE. So I arrived at the LSE last September. Um, and I just have to say thank you to a number of people for making me feel so welcome. Um, certainly the Department of Gender Studies. Colleagues are here. I see a few people. So thank you um, for making me feel so welcome. It's great to launch the book here. It's great to kind of have arrived and have this to share. And then the Centre on Women, Peace and Security, Christine Chinkin, so two Christines, so I have to <laughs> figure out how to talk about both of them. But Christine Chinkin also, and I've had the pleasure of teaching with Christine all year and learned a lot from her through that, so thank you for that. Um, and then to Zoe, who's here, who has twice organised this event. Thank you. Um, and has done a stellar job, of course. And then lastly, just to say thank you to the students of our first Master's Programme on Women, Peace and Security. I see some of them there. Um, it's great to have my first year here, year, year here with you in our first year of this programme. Um, they threw me a lovely baby shower send-off today, and it was beautiful. My office is full of balloons. Um, so thank you for that. It was just beautiful. So, the book. Um, it was kind of hard to know what you talk about at a book launch, and obviously it's the book. But then, um, you know, the book is quite a dense um, project, and you've spent a long time on it, and how do you whittle that down to 20 minutes as such? And so I was trying to think about what's most useful in terms of providing some of the insights, I guess, to the research that I've been afforded to undertake to produce the book. Um, and what I'm going to do is just give a little bit of context to, to the book itself and where it comes from, the motivations and rationale behind it. Um, and then there's three major findings on violence, so I'll kind of give a summary of those three major findings, and then bring us to the conversation on justice and transition and that post-conflict moment and um, what the book speaks to in terms of that issue. So as I go through this, I hope that I'm, I offer enough context for those of you who are not so familiar with the field in which the research is based, um, but then also enough for those of you who are familiar with that to kind of get something out of it, if you like. Um, first of all, it, as Christine said, the, the book itself is about conflict-related violence against women. Um, and it focuses on the three contexts of Northern Ireland, Liberia, and Timor-Leste. It's not necessarily about those specific conflicts, but rather uses the case studies to talk about violence against women, per se, in those um, um, across kind of armed conflicts, if you like. It's a qualitative study, and deliberately so. I mean, I come from that kind of discipline of wanting to know about women's lives and the quality of violence in women's lives, and trying to understand the characteristics of violence and what's actually happening in the day-to-day -day of, of women's experiences. Um, there's a broader kind of context to this. The book took quite some time <laughs> to come into fruition in terms of starting as a PhD project and then finally getting to the stage where I could kind of produce um, something that I wanted to, I suppose, publish in this form. Um, and a lot changed in the period of time in which I was writing the book, which influenced a lot and has made a difference in terms of where I started from and where kind of we are today. And just to note, you know, in my trajectory, as Christine said, I started out as a practitioner. And in 1999, I was in my first kind of humanitarian context on the Albanian border with Kosovo. And I was working with adolescent girls. And what I was hearing from girls was stories over and over of sexual violence. 
and of being raped, and of when they were fleeing from the Kosovo hinterland out to, kind of across the border to where we were, being deliberately separated out and teenage girls being separated out because there was the idea of from the Serb forces that we target and rape teenage girls to prevent marriages, to prevent onward um, population of the Kosovo um, uh, community, if you like. And I raised these. I was 23. I was an intern. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I knew this was something that was happening. And I raised it with my more experienced colleagues in the NGO I was in and with others in, you know, kind of some of the broader NGO humanitarian community. And the response was, well, we don't do that. That's too sensitive. It's too political. We don't do that. And, of course, that kind of stumped me because I thought, well, this is part of these girls' and women's experiences. It's part of the conflict. It's part of the humanitarian crisis. Why are we not responding to this? And this is despite an earlier context, which is, as many of you will be familiar with, in the 1990s, the Wars of the Balkans, where we had the first identification formally through the UN system that rape was being used as a systematic tool. Um, and, of course, the judgments of the International Criminal Court and the, the tribunal in Yugoslavia, that this was, in fact, happening, and this was something that criminal and humanitarian law was going to respond to and regulate. But the humanitarian community wasn't quite there yet, and the actor was like, no, we don't do that. So fast forward to today, um, and I'm sure as many of you are aware, we have a suite of UN Security Council resolutions, eight in total, which look at women, peace and security, four of which, which focus specifically on sexual violence as a tactic. Um, it's a very specific definition, tactic being that armed actors use this in deliberate ways. We use this as part of political strategy and is part of the kind of aims of the armed group and their intentions. Very narrow framing of what that looks like and how it takes place. We have the Security Council having two annual open debates every year on women and women's lives. Phenomenal that the foremost security body in the world would do that. We have a special representative on sexual violence in conflict, um, on, um, looking at on sexual violence in the entire system with the mandate to advocate for change on this. We have, of course, the UK Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative, uh, you know, a huge global undertaking with lots of um, in political interest and funding towards ending sexual violence and conflict, and the IASC, the Interagency Standing Committee, which is the architecture of the UN system that oversees humanitarian action, has now engaged and has produced a body of guidelines on how to respond to what they call gender-based violence in um, humanitarian contexts. So in the space of my career, from then to now, there's been radical changes, and in the middle of that, I started this book project. Um, and at the time I started this, <clears throat> and the PhD on this, after I had left the humanitarian field, if you like, I left very frustrated, not only because of the lack of response to women's lives and women's bodies, but also because what I was seeing on the ground wasn't quite what the policy frameworks were telling me I should be paying attention to. So the policy frameworks were saying, this mass sexual violence, it's happening in this way, we need to address it in this way. Yes, that was happening, but somewhere like Darfur, in the camps I was working in every day, the services I was providing to women and girls, we were actually finding women and girls coming in with broader harms, domestic violence, um, honour killings. These kinds of harms were also happening, and they were being exacerbated and enabled by the exigencies of the conflict. But when I tried to get those addressed, nobody was interested. 
They wanted to know when the armed groups had done something, and then they would respond to that. And, and several times I had UN officials say, no, we don't do that. We only do this bit. So tell us about this sexual violence. And sometimes, of course, one woman would have experienced all of those in the space of a week or in the space of her experience of the conflict. So in some sense, what we see today is significant progress in how the global context looks at women's experiences of war and particularly of sexual violence. But of course, positioning my work in a feminist framework is to be curious about that and to ask questions about, well, why is it that violence? Why is it that we only talk about this violence in this way and we're interested in that? And I guess that kind of, that's where the, the, the rationale and the motivation for the book comes because why, why is it that um, we focus on this violence but we're not interested in the broader experiences of women? Um, and the book then deals specifically with the, that this is a topic. The first being the di dichotomies in violence. So basically the lines that are drawn between some forms of violence and others. We're interested in that sexual violence as a tactic, but we're not interested in this other violence that women might experience that might be conflict-related. But who gets to define what's conflict-related and not? Do women get to articulate that themselves? Themselves. Also, this, because of the preoccupation that's developed over the last decade or so with sexual violence as a tactic, it's become seen as something that's exceptional. This is something that's different than happens in warfare. But of course, again, as feminists, we ask, well, is it that exceptional? Is it related to what is sometimes referred to as the mundane? And the main mundane being that 35% of women worldwide experience violence in their intimate relationships. And so, of course, we think that that's mundane then, you know, we clearly have a problem. <laughs> but that is the starting point. And so can violence be both exceptional and related to the everyday violence that women experience? And then the aftermath of conflict. We, of course, make assumptions that the conflict's over, this sexual violence as a tactic is gone, we're done. We know when feminist work has shown already that after conflict the violence doesn't go away. But we're also making a lot of assumptions, I think, about what is actually happening. And I was curious about that. So the, the research overall establishes a way to try and approach conflict-related violence against women. So it's deliberately about a framing of broader violence, not just sexual violence and not just the tactic. And it's about what happens during war, but it's also about what happens after and then at a moment you think, well, how does that relate to the before? What the, how does that relate to the before conflict? And so the book kind of looks at this composite of violence across pre, during, and post-conflict con contexts to try and advance our, our understanding of that in a quali very qualitative way, if you like. So I have three sets of findings, as I said, um, and I'm going to start here with the during conflict moment, if you like. And as I said, my interest was in acknowledging, and as, as I critique the, um, the focus on strategic rape, it's not to say that that's not important or that doesn't matter. It does, of course. And we're still very far from understanding fully the motivations, the drivers, the impacts of the ways that strategic rape takes place in armed conflicts. We do know that there's variation across contexts around the world, and that's kind of what I wanted to look at. Um, and so I took my three case studies and I spent time literally just mapping the physical harms that women would talk about in these contexts. I spent time in each context working with um, those women um, service providers who work with women and girls and hearing the stories of the violences that they experienced. And through that I mapped out, I suppose what are, and Christine has helped me think through this, the pathways and opportunity structures for the ways that violence happens. 
So rather than simply regurgitating what we know about strategic rape in some of the three contexts, I was looking beyond that to see well, what exists otherwise. And so I found, I mean, for me, a lot of surprising things, particularly for the Northern Ireland context. And I'll give some examples here and there that I hope will illustrate what I'm talking about. So aside from an armed group perhaps deciding to, or deliberately or otherwise, and start using mass public sexual violence as part of their attacks on villages, etc., there are other ways that actors who are related in direct and indirect ways with the conflict will end up enacting violence against women and girls. And so one of the things we need to think about is that a conflict provides an increased opportunity for state and non-state actors, as well as private citizens, to enact violence against women and girls. And these will take place alongside or in the absence of strategic rape. Because often with the way that the discourse has occurred globally, um, we make an assumption that if strategic rape hasn't occurred, then women haven't experienced violence. Now, of course, that's not the case. And Northern Ireland is a typical example of this, where we don't have evidence, at least, of cross-ethno-national sexual violence taking place as a deliberate strategy of the conflict there. But when I went digging, I was able to find lots of examples of where state actors, for example, when women were passing through checkpoints in Belfast and other cities, they would experience sexual harassment, inappropriate touching, um, women who were taken in and lifted, as, as we would say in Northern Ireland, um, into prisons and in for detention were experiencing threats of rape. Um, and these kinds of things were happening in these spaces. In Timor-Leste, the Indonesian government would have um, worked with pro what they called proxy militias, so Timorese militia, who also used their power and status in their, where they were based in their communities to compel women to perform sexual services for them, etc. So these kinds of things were happening that are not directly related to the purpose of the armed group, if you like, but those involved were using them. We all know, of course, that impunity is a critical factor um, in enabling sexual and other forms of violence and conflict. We have, of course, formal legal impunity where there's a breakdown in the rule of law. Um, but also what I found was what I call implicit impunity. The status privileges that are afforded to armed actors, because of the power that they have, they're enabled to actually um, enact um, uh, incidents of violence. So, for example, again, in Northern Ireland, there are some cases um, available where... Um, members of paramilitary organizations would enact sexual abuse on women and on um, children. And the armed group, they, if it came to light, if someone reported it, they would basically cover it up and enable that person and move them to another community or down into the Republic of Ireland or elsewhere. And, but they were enabled to in, um, enact those violences and given cover by the armed group, if you like. Selective sanctions is another way. So we talk about sanctions and you know, armed groups and militaries disciplining their troops. We will not do that. This is the behavior and standard of the armed group. But I would argue that we need to understand that this is applied in selective ways in many contexts. So for example, again, um, in Northern Ireland, there was a prohibition on members of paramilitaries, particularly within the provisional IRA, who had a code of conduct for members where they would not enact um, sexual violence in a public way across uh, the two communities. But then when there were reports coming out of child abuse or domestic violence, again, the group would not sanction those, but sanction other kinds of violence. Access to resources also, again, membership of groups and um, of armed groups of social networks, if you like, access to guns. So somewhere like uh, Liberia, where women would talk to me about how, yes, there was mass sexual violence taking place there, but they were really 
insistent to kind of explain that it wasn't that some of the armed men were enacting a tactic as they engaged with, with um, in their communities. It was that when women were fleeing in columns and passing through checkpoints, men that they knew would say, you, and pull them out and rape them. And their argument was that, well, I couldn't have you before, but I can now, right, because of the exigencies of the conflict, which is linked, of course, to the next one, which is personal incentives, where, uh, again, a lot of women in Liberia would have talked about how men would have rounded them up and seen women as gathering of um, wealth and reward, if you like. And then the instrumental use of violence. And, of course, instrumentality of violence is linked to this idea of a tactic. But, again, I'm, here I'm finding that there's another way that it's instrumental. In some of the contexts in Liberia, um, there was violent acts enacted by armed actors which co-opted women into ritualistic violence. So some cannibalistic acts and others. And that this was seen in their understanding to imbue further power on them. And rape was co-opted into that. So the instrumentality of the rape and sexual violence was for the individual fighter rather than the armed group as a whole. So when we look at kind of these drivers of violence and the way that violence occurs... What I see and what I, you know, I think we need to think about more in our scholarship and, and in our policy, of course, is that there's variants of violence within the one site. It's not just that one kind of violence is happening. There's multiple violences happening. And there's variants across conflict sites. And just because the stereotypical form of violence that we expect is not happening doesn't mean that there are other forms that are not happening. And we need to dig deeper and, and look for more nuance in that. Context, of course, is crucial. And feminist scholars have said this for decades before me. And I draw from that work here, where we obviously need to pay attention to context. Some scholars argue that the nature of the conflict has nothing to do with the way that violence occurs, but actually I would argue the opposite, particularly where the use of sanctions, etc., will take place because armed groups, for example, in Northern Ireland, will rely on the support of their communities for their ability to adapt their aims. In other conflicts, that won't be the case. That will determine and influence the ways that harms against women will occur. So I would argue that there's multi-purpose violences. There's political violence, which may be the sexual violence as a tactic. There's the personal violence in the private space. Um, and there's something in between where the armed actors are enacting violence, not for political aims, but for personal gains. And we really need to look at that spectrum of violence that's occurring and overcome this idea of hierarchies, that it's not just sexual violence as a weapon of war, but there's these other harms occurring as well. So the second area is really this big question I think we've all, many scholars before me have been grappling with, around the connections between the conflict and non-conflict violence. Um, we have a lot of assumptions, I think, in our literature around what that relationship is and what it means. We have, of course, a fantastic body of work that I've drawn from on the idea of continuums of violence, which Christine referred to. Um, but we also increasingly have, as we come to learn more about what happens in a conflict, we have the argument from Margaret Urban Walker and others that actually there is something distinctive about what happens in conflict. And we need to be careful not to just flatten it all, that it's all the same thing. Because, and you know, this is something I've heard from women as well, is that there is something distinctive about this experience. But of course we need to ask questions about why that will be distinctive compared to other harm, forms of harm that you might um, experience. And it's about kind of coming back to, well, how do I articulate this? How do I experience this as a woman? How do I frame that in my life? And what does this feel like compared to the other harms that I may have been um, exposed to? So I decided to develop a framework of pre-, during-, and post-conflict violence against women. So what I literally did was I drew lines in the sand 
and I took the periods of the conflict when it started, how long it went for, and then when it ended. And I mapped out all of the violence that I could find in my research. So I did a ton of archival work, um, tried to figure out and as much data and um, research as I could for the pre-conflict context, what we had on during and then post. Now, I will say that, of course, many, many scholars, particularly feminist scholars, the whole point of feminism is to undo the lines that are drawn, right, and, and undo the binaries and dichotomies that we have. But I decided to try it, and let me do it anyway, and then do this disaggregated approach, but then do an analysis that was aggregated to deal with the kind of problems that are drawn in, in between by lines in the sand, if you like. And it was very revealing, I have to say. So on the one hand, in a disaggregated way, of course, in the pre-conflict context, in all three sites, I found various um, sustained forms of violence against women. Now, of course, we're talking domestic violence, we're talking um, some of the um, practices and harms in places like Liberia, such as FGM. We had um, practices um, in Timor-Leste where girls were given to visitors to villages, for example, extending from colonial times. There's a sustained and normative level of violence against women in a pre-conflict context. And we can take that in any of our contexts globally today, right? So if the World Health Organization tells us that there's 35% of women worldwide experiencing some form of violence, that's the normative basis on which an armed conflict occurs. So then we question, well, what happens during the conflict? Does that have a relationship? Does that have an influence? With the during conflict piece, I took it that, yes, we have some evidence of strategic rape in some locations. We have then the variants that I've talked about already and the ways that different kinds of harms take place. And we have newly emerging and distinctive forms of harm happening as well. So you get a melding here of what happened before and new things that have happened during this. I also interestingly found some things where some forms of violence cease during a conflict, which we don't actually acknowledge enough. So for example, um, some women in Liberia talked about how the domestic violence in their lives ended because the men were gone. In Northern Ireland, um, the, the strategy of the British state, of course, was internment. We had huge numbers of men who were imprisoned. Again, women talked about how when the men were gone, the domestic violence stopped. So there's this flux. Right? But also what we see is that in somewhere like Liberia, women talked about how well, the violence in the home was stopped, but actually the, the non-state actors were in control of my community. So when I left the home and I was responsible for looking for food and doing different chores, that it was those men then who decided the kind of violence I was exposed to. So there's some sort of exchange going on here about who's disciplining women during a conflict. And then, of course, the post-conflict context. So in some sense, we can assume, well, it's gone. All of that violence of the conflict is done, it's over. Um, and somewhere like Timor-Leste is interesting because the Indonesian forces have left, so they're actually gone. Somewhere like Liberia, you have returning fighters. So what's happening with that? And what I found was that in the immediate aftermath of a conflict, um, you had newly emerging forms of violence, such as women living beside the men who had raped them or killed their family members, experiencing threats and intimidations. You had new actors being introduced, so private actors, say, in the mining industry. Um, you had uh, UN peacekeepers and international NGO staff, um, and sexual exploitation and abuse as an issue. And then the longer term sustained was, of course, returning men, returning domestic violence, um, and newly kind of melding forms of harm in that. So what you have is these chunks of different violences driven by different factors, but then in aggregate, what you have, of course, is an underlying level of structural inequalities affecting women. Gender as a, as a critical framework for us all, I think, to understand those forms of violence. Um, but also these 
ups and downs of violence, some increasing, some decreasing, some new forms, etc. And so what I kind of took from that was to think about how we can understand the innovations that are talked about in violence during conflict. So the mass strategic rape, the way that it's done public, publicly, the mutilations, these kinds of harms that, that accompany rape, that actually it's a mutation and a fluctuation of what has gone before. It's another variation to what has gone before. And we need to see more and understand more about those shifts that are happening. And so I came up with this idea of um, ambulant violence, that it's shifting and changing over time. It's not static. And that rather than seeing um, only connections, which we should see in violence across time, we also need to um, acknowledge some of the distinctions that emerge because of the shifts. And the way that women experience it, because they will understand that in some sense, okay, this is violence in my life, but this feels different than this one here, whether that's the violence in the home or the violence by armed actors, by strangers, if you like. So there's room here for us to understand the connections in violence across time, but also the distinctions in violence, if you like. So the third area then is just to look at the post-conflict um, context itself. I was curious about this more than anything. Um, and Rather than what happened when I was doing my field research was obviously I was talking to lots of different actors in the different places I was in. And what emerged was lots of observations of the language of how people were talking about this. And so this piece is less about the actual characteristics of the violence and more about well, what, what are we calling it and how are we talking about it. All of the three contexts that I'm interested in have had transitions from conflict. Um, they've all... Timor-Leste and Liberia are similar in that they had large UN peacekeeping operations in place. Northern Ireland, very different, obviously. But all of them experienced a shift in how violence against women is understood. So in all three sites, for example, we had, after the conflict, a newly emerging interest in um, the collection of data on violence against women. Policing services suddenly start collecting data in Liberia and Timor-Leste. In Northern Ireland, they had been doing it since the mid-1990s. The Good Friday Belfast Agreement was 1998, but there was a change to the way the data was collected. And so they saw suddenly this volume of violence that they had data on. And this perception that, okay, we're having large volumes of violence, there's increases in violence, etc. But again, you know, in Northern Ireland, for example, women who work on these issues would say, well, Actually, we just see more people having more trust in the policing after the conflict has ended. We see more reporting happening, etc. There's a new discourse that emerged, certainly in Liberia and Timor-Leste, where these new international terms come in. So GBV, gender-based violence. Women in Liberia used to joke and say, well, even the children say GBV, they know what it is. Like, this is how prolific this project speak of the UN and other international organizations emerge. And in response, in all three conflicts, new policy frameworks emerge. So in Liberia, new laws on sexual violence are in place. In Timor-Leste, a law on domestic violence is put in place, which, disclaimer, I was involved in developing. And then um, in Northern Ireland, emerging policy frameworks and engagement with the police. And again, in Northern Ireland, people, women who work in refugees talked about how, after the conflict ended, they suddenly had the media and police all coming and knocking at their door saying, well, what can we do now? Because the conflict was over. And they've nothing to do as such. So suddenly all the focus is on these issues and a whole other conversation about it. So what are the implications? Um, and, you know, this is difficult because on the one hand you're critiquing some really good progress, right? Um, but there are implications for what we're introducing after a conflict that we need to pay more attention to, I think. And I came up with this idea that labelling, a process of labelling is happening after a conflict takes place where new actors are coming in 
new act, the existing actors like policing, the legal system, etc., are getting suddenly involved in this. Some of this is a response to what happened to the conflict, which is great. And, but we've got to question that because is looking backwards a way to deal with what's happening today, right? So the labeling of violence, suddenly calling it something, that this is violence, that this actually has um, an onward consequence of creating visibility to that violence. So we're suddenly having conversations on domestic violence, on sexual violence. It's been given a name. It's no longer just what happens every day in my household, if you like. But what that does is that it gives a visibility to some form of violence over others. So, for example, in Liberia, um, the sexual violence laws, which are very strong and necessary frameworks, a lot of the women activists there would talk about how, yes, we need to focus on sexual violence, but actually what we have in the refugees and what we have in our services is more domestic violence coming in. And that once we start talking about domestic violence in the home and in the relationship, we get increases in reporting on that. But we don't have a law on that. Why not? We're responding back to the conflict, right? So what we're calling it, and the policy frameworks we're putting in place, is influencing reporting patterns. And so we're getting people coming forward. They're hearing the awareness raising about sexual violence. They're reporting that. Domestic violence remains occluded. It also influences what we think we know. So I'm sure some of you here are aware, and this is what I was interested in, and um, it's difficult, you know, because you want to engage with the debate. And, and there's a big debate out there that there are increases in violence against women after conflict. There may be. And there may be in some forms of violence. But can we take a generalised idea that that is happening universally? And I think part of this is really understanding what we think we know. Because if we have a law on sexual violence and women are prompting that, and that's what we're seeing reported, then that's what we think we know is happening. But we're not asking questions or giving language to people to talk about other forms of violence. And so that remains invisible. So we're still kind of occluding some forms of violence um, in those contexts. And I had multiple, in every single context, I spoke at length with service providers where I asked them, do you think that violence against women is increasing now that the conflict is over? They all said yes. And then I said, well, how does that relate to the way that the police is now collecting data? How does that relate to the way that women are now being supported to come forward in services? Oh, yeah, there's more reporting. Okay, so what's the relationship? And, and over, we'd have a long discussion about this, and eventually it was like, yes, there's more reporting. It's not the violence. Well, we don't know because we don't have pre-conflict statistics to compare this with, right? And that's the bottom line for us. But there's something really interesting happening in how we, the language we, took, we use and the assumptions we're making about particular forms of violence. And some really interesting conversations in Timor-Leste where so many people, the human rights activists, said to me, well, we have human rights now. So, well, did you not have that before? Um, well, no. Because now we know that violence against women is wrong, so we have human rights now. And so suddenly there's this whole other framing and meaning attributed to violence against women. We understand it as something that's wrong. And so our society and our response services are, are responding to that. So it matters what we label something after a conflict. It matters what we call it, the meaning we're helping people put to the violence in their lives. And then what we're providing for them is a framework to come forward and report it. Um, and I think, you know, that really matters for how we respond to violence against women in the aftermath of conflict, the assumptions we might make. Because what we really need to do is spend time finding out well, what's happening now. What's happening right now? What are the violences? And allow women to provide those labels and create those labels by themselves. So my last slide, and I'll wrap up, is so what? 
all of that violence, right? <laughs> it's a lot of violence. Um, and you know, it really is quite striking um, when you spend three, four, five years just, um, you know, spending time with descriptions of physical forms of violence and seeing the words that women use to describe the violence in their lives. It really is quite striking the mass of violence that many women are experiencing pre, during and post-conflict. Some women experiencing all of various forms of violence in one lifetime and some women just different and distinctive forms of violence. But when you come to the post-conflict and you look at justice, which we often do to deal with the past, if you like, to try and come up with this, we have an expectation that justice is going to deliver a change um, in women's lives. And I think that's a fine expectation in many ways. But, you know, we're also expecting this massive violence, in some sense, if, if, if you want to say, to be dealt with. And often that's not what the international justice and legal system does. So many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the idea of transitional justice, a post-conflict form of, violence, of justice where we have modalities such as truth commissions, um, reparations measures, international courts and tribunals, which try to provide accountability for the harms that are happening, together the truth of what's happened. And so I wanted to figure out, well, if all of this violence is happening, what is the law saying, which is the modality through which justice um, is primarily um, ascribed, if you like, in these contexts? And what's it saying to women about the violence in their lives? Does it actually speak to what I found, which is the variance in violence within and across settings, the connections and distinctions in violence, and then the ways that we're labelling it after conflict? So I looked at truth commissions and courts in, in all three contexts. I don't have time to go into that in detail, um, certainly in the book. But just to kind of very quickly touch on some of what I found. So particularly with the truth commissions, you know, this is the space where women get to talk about, here's what's happened to me, maybe. Right? If they're included, if they get to speak, if it's a context in which they get to speak about the harms in their way and the way they want to talk about it, um, and if gendered harms in the first place are actually in there. So what I found, for example, um, is that the ways that the justice modalities were being put in place, on the one hand, were attempting to be gender, what we call gender-responsive. Right? They were trying to put in place systems and modes of truth-telling and storytelling where women could tell their stories. But on the other hand, of course, the systems themselves are subject to the systems themselves, which is the, the law itself and what the law says you can and can't do, and then to systems that are set up to kind of look at the conflict in a very finite and time-bound way. And what I hope I've kind of talked about is that, you know, violence is not a time-bound experience. It's related to all that has come before and all that's going to come in future. And what I found in, across um, many of them, um, for example, is very reductive versions of violence against women. And that's by the very nature of the truth commissions themselves. So, for example, for the Liberia Truth Commission, yes, there was an inclusion of gendered harms and sexual violence, which is fantastic. But there was a focus specifically on state, non-state non actors, with the occlusion of private citizens, which many women said actually they were using the opportunity of the conflict to enact violences against us. So how do we capture that indirect relation to the conflict in there? Um, we have certainly across the Truth Commission's quite compartmentalised approaches to violence. So the sexual violence of the conflict, what the armed actors did, that's what the reports and what the hearings are about. How that relates out to women's broader experiences of harm are largely absent from a lot of these Truth Commissions. And then women themselves become invisible. And so somewhere like Northern Ireland, where um, we're still trying to figure out how to deal with the past, if that ever happens. And um, the one kind of process, the consultative uh, group on dealing with the past, 
as a colleague of ours, Catherine Worker, says, as if there's no women in Northern Ireland at all, they don't exist. Um, and certainly the harms that women experienced have not been captured in that first process. In first process. Um, and instead what it does is reinforce hierarchies of harms with an overfocus on civil and political rights, the harms that are experienced by men, and the invisibility of the harms that women experience. And so it's not just that in some sense you may get some references to specific forms of sexual violence and strategic rape, but the broader context to women's harms, and certainly what I found is not coming into these. And so what I kind of concluded then was that we have you know, a set of frameworks, our international legal frameworks, our women, peace and security resolutions, which you'll be familiar with. All of these set up for gendered approaches to truth, to justice. And in some sense, they push open space to allow for the inclusion of gendered harms and women, which is fantastic. But by the very nature of the structures and systems that we're using, it's contracting and pulling back the space at the same time. So you have this push and pull going on all the time where here's the violence, but we're only going to look at this bit. This violence, not that violence. Some women, not other women. Um, and so there's this push and pull happening in the aftermath. And we talk about transition, we talk about justice enabling our transition to move from a violent um, conflict context into a, a post-conflict dispensation that's characterized by, by a version of peace, if you like. Um, and feminists and feminist scholars talk about the idea of transformation. And I really grappled with this quite a bit because, you know, do we know what that means? What does that actually look like for women? And I really kind of try to pull that apart and understand that, of course, it's about these systems and the aftermath of conflict dealing with the structural inequalities that fed down the violence that happened in the first place. But going, you know, in some way beyond that as well to understand the context of the violence that's taking place. And so in the book I have a kind of table of mapping out the difference between transition and transformation. But some of the things like, okay, a transition and, and justice will focus on state and non-state actors. To be more transformative, we need to include a conversation with private citizens about what happened. We need to include those stories in there. We need to look beyond simply the slicing up of the pie of here's what happened in the conflict to connecting that back to the structural harms that women experience and looking across interrelational connections across space and time. And certainly that critique of the public and private and looking at the indirect violence that's happening in women's lives because until we recognise that as problematic and part of the story of, of conflict-related violence against women, there's not going to be much change for women in the aftermath. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. It's very hard to speak after that. <laughs> so it's a really great honour for me to be here tonight. Um, sandwiched between Christine Chinkin, who is an whose work is an inspiration for so many of us, and also another inspirational woman from whom, um, technically my student, but from whom I learnt so much, Ashleen Swain, whose work you've heard tonight. And I think um, it also has been... It's really gratifying at this stage, in some sense, having managed a research program, seeing research come out and seeing us find out new things about it. And I think for me, Ashleen's book, um, what has been sort of complex about watching it unfold and where I think it makes its, bigger, its biggest contribution is that it challenges lots of different mantras at once. And I think it's how it challenges those that sort of, how does that... Um, pave the way to action for the future. So at some level, as she's explained tonight, I better put my glasses on, I can't see my notes. It challenges the idea um, of conflict-related violence having some sort of 
um, being some sort of international agenda. I think what Ashley's research brought out really strongly was how much this is a demand from local women. Um, and there's been quite a big sort of, in some strands, of feminist pushback around this isn't really the issue and this disempowers women. I think Ashley's work really um, powerfully brings out women's voices from local contexts. It also, uh, I think, builds on work around continuities of violence, but also shows the discontinuities. And I think in the way her talk illustrated tonight, the quite complex interplay between conflict-related violence and non-conflict-related violence, and the fact that if we're almost segregating up those things, we're missing the point. But at the same time, if we don't understand the way that the, the notion of the conflict reshapes things, we're also missing the point. Uh, and I think that's a powerful new insight. Um, she also shows in ways that, that policies come in at one level and make a distinction uh, between different forms of violence. And yet I think also some of that is beginning to change. Uh, but in, it also leaves open for us, given that changes to the norms of international law themselves have been such a powerful feminist gain and in ways responsible for the progress we've seen in the time. It was really taken back actually just when Ashley was talking tonight about a couple of times. I sort of had these two parts in my life where I was very active in the main human rights group that was focused very much on civil and political rights. And then um, there was this sort of women's rights piece and I was always trying to bring these together and it was quite complicated. So for example, women's aid um, were quite resistant to using human rights language around domestic violence because they felt it de made it not a women's issue but also human rights language was very controversial in Northern Ireland so putting it in human rights language had a cost as well. Um, and I remember then I also, as a feminist lawyer, just so many people had issues around access to reproductive rights, um, uh, child sex abuse in their families, um, sexual abuse against themselves, and it all just, there weren't that many um, women lawyers that were known to be open to those things. So all these things just came in your door, both as an academic and as a practitioner. And I remember one particular meeting, um, really between the ceasefires and the agreement, where together with um, the amazing Eileen Calder at Belfast Rape Crisis Centre, a crisis centre which has had to close post-conflict due to lack of funding, and anyone that's been following recent rape trials might um, cause to wonder at that, um, met with, we invited all, um, politicians to come and meet with women who'd experienced abuse within their families, and actually the only politicians that turned up were the loyalist um, group, the loyalist politicians, um, who also were very closely aligned with the paramilitary groups. And actually it was a very um, staggering meeting in terms of the level of abuse that was talked about and the levels of silencing that had happened for all sorts of complex relationships between the state and the church, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, um, and with informers uh, and the different ways in which agendas played out in murky ways. And uh, all of those politicians that night went away committing to do something around sexual violence. Some of those commitments stuck. Uh, for us in the programme, this work has sat together with a number of other pieces of work uh, that are just fascinating. So one of the other pieces of work we funded were 
um, relates to domestic violence in Northern Ireland, and the reason we fund it as a programme that's concerned with developing countries in that context was because Northern Ireland is one of the only places in the world where Monica McWilliams, whose name you will, many of you know from the Women's Coalition, had undertaken a piece of research during the conflict on domestic violence. And actually, to her great surprise and astonishment, it gave us one of the good news stories of the programme, which is if you get DDR right, if you get decommissioning of weapons right, and you get police reform right and criminal justice reform right, it transforms the experience of sexual violence, um, of, of domestic violence. Um, and that, uh, but the, the bad news story was that it also that research revealed the extent to which paramilitaries on both sides, particularly the loyalist side, actually are still very much shaping and in control of women's lives in particular communities. So that was very interesting. Um, I can answer questions about that. We also have work ongoing around norms and how women do use norms to make gains as part of local agendas rather than top-down agendas by Catherine O'Rourke. And I'm going to just show you, really at the level of flashing some statistics, um, some of the work that we've been involved in. Really, this has been an attempt to ask how do people um, create pacts that get out of conflict who gets included in those conversations, and what, how does that influence and shape the agendas? How, how do international laws do look at that? So we've really coded. I feel like this is mad to tell people this. We've read all the peace agreements in the world, of which there's 1,500 in 143 peace processes since 1990. And we've coded them for everything, including um, all the gender issues. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, and I thought I'd just show you, um, so why do we care about what peace agreements say? Well, I mean, of course we don't really, but they are. <laughs> but, um, but actually, these are the moments in time when people thought they had a solution to the conflict. These are the agendas. If we look at peace agreements not as, commi as commitments that armed groups make, that other actors get to influence and shape, that through which the international funding mechanisms flow. They're really agendas and roadmaps for the future nature of the state. The reason we're all conducting this research is we're really interested in questions of inclusion, who gets included and who gets excluded, and how do some types of inclusion lead to other forms of exclusion? How do we move from elite pacts that we do need to end conflicts to much, something that's much more of a social contract that, that reworks even the gender contract. Uh, and that's really how all this research comes together. So I just pulled together. These are all the gender provisions. Um, I've got the website up at the end, so you can all play around with this and tell me all the mistakes in it. But um, these are how gender provisions change over time. So this is just a crude amalgamation of all the gender provisions and peace agreements. And you can see that there is, um, there's zigzags because it's just by year, but there's an increase of those provisions over time. Um, this is too complicated, but it just, if you just focus on the very top line, um, uh, it just shows you some of the things that we coded within references to women, equality quotas, violence, participation, particular groups of women. And you can kind of see, if you look down the third column, the violence, um, that the percentages are quite small of agreements at each stage that deal with violence against women in any shape or form. 
um, which in some sense is a bad thing. In another sense, if you look at some of the um, references to participation that are a bit higher, um, it kind of challenges the idea that women are only present in agreements as victims um, because, in fact, they're quite often their participation is referenced. Um, I'm not really going to explain that, um, but it just shows it was we just so we did a silly thing, which was we sort of counted up and we decided a gender score for how well agreements did, and then saw whether they were changing over time, and they were too. Uh, this is references to sexual violence, and I just marked in what could be regarded as the normative shifts. Um, the reference to UN Security Council Resolution 1325 in 2000, a sort of flurry of resolutions which dealt with sexual violence in 2008, and then a sort of more recent one in 2013. And um, the, the graph isn't flattened out enough here, but there are sort of some rises and a more significant rise for agreements that the UN is involved in. Um, this is just general. Um, so sometimes in peace agreements they use the form sexual violence or specific forms of sexual violence, but sometimes they just use the, fo- the term gender-based violence, and that, of course, can mean a whole range of things. Um, so that's the, the broader um, violence against women statistics all put together, and that's just the gender-based violence one. Uh, then this is quite interesting. So we have coded the agreements around different stages of, of agreements. So we have ceasefire agreements, which can actually happen at any point in the process because these processes are not linear. They go back and forwards. So this is where lines in the sand also become complicated. We've got pre-negotiation agreements. Um, sub- sorry, it's not in a good order. It should really be substantive partial agreements, agreements that are very substantive but don't claim to do the whole conflict comprehensive agreements, implementation agreements, um, and don't worry about the other things. What's interesting is, actually, in ways the ceasefire, 4.9% of agreements in uh, ceasefires reference um, sexual violence. That's quite significant because sexual violence isn't mentioned as a violation of a ceasefire. It won't be monitored as a breach of the ceasefire. Um, And I think that reflects where women are getting access to the process, which is they're getting access at later stages at the comprehensive level, which is good, and that's where some of the agenda is coming in. But in fact, what we're finding from our research is the pathways for what's seen as the the key issues and some of the key trade-offs around amnesty are happening much earlier in the process and that there's pathway dependencies, as we call them, um, between where issues get decided a little bit of the way and that controls how they get decided later on. So there has to be, I think, a more concerted effort for saying how do women's voice get reflected, often these top-secret initial stages of the agreement where women are almost, by their definition, excluded by the fact that only the very tight-armed actors are there. I I just thought I'd give a few examples. Um, You're not going to have time to read all this. It would be very boring if I do. Um, But these are some of the ceasefire. And you can see just um, sexual violence is just sort of put in a big list of ceasefire. You know, that may seem silly, but it is, as I said, quite important because at least it's on the list. It'll be monitored. Um, Partial agreements. Quite a lot of the references in the partial agreement stage are around to amnesty. I put this one in because... um, the wording of it is very curious. This is one of the earliest references that we have to sexual violence. Um, the amnesty shall not cover crimes against chastity and other crimes committed for personal ends. So it's a strange wording, but according to women in the Philippines, that is a coded reference um, to, to crimes as such as rape. 
Um, substantive agreements, uh, sometimes, again, strong commitments to stopping all types of violence. Uh, and interestingly, and I chose that one because actually that's one of the agreements where when it translated into a constitution, it actually has translated into quite a robust, um, even though there's lots of problems with the constitution that takes forward the Nepal agreements, um, there's actually quite a robust clause around dealing with violence, all forms of violence against women in the constitution. So there's possibly a strong pathway dependency that was created between these quite robust commitments and the constitutional safeguards. And in another area of our work, one of the really surprising things has been where there's commitments to constitutional reform in peace agreements um, and to reform specifically targeted at women. We've traced in the implementation bit of the project where that goes into the Constitution, and it nearly invariably gets written straight in the Constitution. So again, sort of note, um, getting a commitment to constitutional reform into the agreement seems to be something that then is carried forward. Uh, the transitional justice, actually what's quite really surprising to me in the peace agreement data is how few references there are to gender-specific um, things. I don't know why this surprised me, but I just thought transitional justice would be seen as a more womany centered bit and that sexual violence would be seen as an issue and it would feature more, but actually references to women don't, aren't there. What's also fair to say is that peace agreements don't tend to be where the detail of transitional justice mechanisms are addressed, so maybe that's part of the reason. And um, finally, that's just where you look it up and play with it and email me and me ideas and do your master's thesis on the data and everything like that's good. Um, because the idea was that we wouldn't just do our research, but we would kind of facilitate um, a, a lot of research for a lot of times to come. So for, in conclusion, I just wanted to end with my, my own little sort of um, tribute and well wishes to Ashleen and the book. And Ashleen will be familiar with this, but um, it has become a tradition of me. There's a very famous Irish blessing that gets printed on tea towels so, um, and other more notable places. And um, I'm just going to, um, I've just like adapted it a little bit for Ashleen and her book. So we often talk about launching a book. And the other thing we launch is a ship. Um, and I always think it's a little bit the same because you write your book and you really, really, it's all your ideas and then you put it out there and you don't really know where it'll end up, who'll read it, what people will make of it, whether they'll make of it what you thought you were writing. So it's quite, it's quite like launching a ship. So this plays with that a little bit. So may the road rise to meet the book. May the wind of positive reviews be ever at its back. <laughs> May the sun of its commitments shine light for women and the rain of its grief fall soft upon their fields. And until we meet again, may Ashling and all the women who are in the book, may God hold her in the palm of their hand. Thank you. Well, I think that well and truly launched the book. <laughs> so that was a really wonderful um, two different types of research of the qualitative and the women's voices that we heard from Ashley, and then the data, and, you know, and so on, to set against it, which I think was a really good contrast. Um, I was going to start the discussion with asking some questions and so on, but I think given that we've only got just about 20 minutes left... 
Um, we'll go straight to the audience um, because I think that there's probably people who want to ask questions and would like to have the opportunity of discussing with you two um, while we're here. So I won't be selfish and take up the time. <laughs> so who would like to start? Um, can we have some questions? I'll take um, sort of three or so at a time and then come back to uh, Ashley and Christine. Um, can you say who you are? Please keep it brief so that other people can join in and so on. So over there, um, yeah, um, there's a microphone. We're here first. Here for, no, oh, okay, there first. It's okay, take that one first, then come back down here. Um, hi, my name's Amy. I work for Save the Children. Um, my question was, have you looked at any examples of where women commit um, violence, sexual violence against other women, and how has that um, been reflected in your work? So, well, sorry, to say slightly more loudly, where women have committed acts of violence against other women. Yeah. That, whether that's been included in research or so on. Right. Um, no, for the recording. <laughs> um, hi, Ashley. Thank you so much, by the way, for a really good presentation. Sorry, can you introduce yourself? My name is Sarah. Yeah. Uh, I am uh, presently with IOM, the UN Migration Agency, as a senior gender and conflict advisor. Um, this is, um, so my question is, you mentioned how the sort of the, the way that the multilateral system engages with and uses certain types of language mm -hmm. and prioritizes certain aspects of the work can impact and constrict the space in which this violence is being experienced. And I wonder if you have any insight into how sometimes those conflicting narratives of the multilateral system impact in a single space, the different prioritizations between basically experience of the violence of a single survivor being defined as either a human rights problem, an access to justice problem, GBV, VOR, CRSV, and how that then is experienced by individuals in one single space. Thank you. Any others at this stage? Yes, um, Diane. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm Diane Perrins. I'm in the Gender Institute. Um, thank you, Ashleen, for a very, very impressive research, especially as it originated in a PhD, which is very, very rich indeed. But I just wanted to ask you more about your methodology. Sure. Um, you mentioned qualitative methods, but how exactly did you secure the data that you refer to in these different countries? Thank you. Thank you. Take another one. This point. Yes. Thank you very much, Ashlyn, for the book. But I want to ask you specifically about Darfur and the prevention. Did you find in your framework, is it different in Islamic countries and um, how uh, the prevention? Because always we look at certain countries and how we work with UN, but then there is uh, certain ideas that if we work with local women, how can we actually uh, produce better um, uh, transition into law and how that could be reflected? Okay, we'll take those to start with. I think most of them were about the book, but Christine, if you've got any sort of quick responses, to, or maybe after Ashley said, if you'd like to come back in, you know, after that. So if you go, Ashley, yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, those were really rich questions, um, and you're clearly listening, so thank you. That's great. <laughs> At one point, I'm like, this is dense. Um, so the first question, uh, thank you, around women who commit violence. Now, 
Um, this is certainly um, an issue that's emerging. That we're, and again, you know, it's about this: what becomes visible, what doesn't become visible, right? And what questions do we ask? And, and it all really kind of comes back to that. When I was doing this research, obviously I was looking at harms perpetrated against women, right? But I did come across some, um, particularly in Liberia, actually, where there's some documentation available where women fighters who were with, I mean, you know, in these armed conflicts, you can have up to 20 splintered armed factions, right? Um, and women, as we know, in Liberia were co-opted into, forced into, and elected to join um, armed groups. So there's a variance there in motivation. And you see different stories coming out of women who did become high up in the hierarchy of the armed groups who would, you know, again, this is just some brief isolated incidents that I came across of women who would go out and capture armed women who would capture other civilian women and bring them back to the armed group enclave and give them to the men in the group to protect themselves from rape, basically, within the armed group. So basically, it was um, women with a higher power with this, again, this argument about access to resources and status privilege that I use that to protect myself from sexual violence, but the men are demanding this, so here's some other women. And, you know, it's, it's a very difficult and complex dynamic to think through. Uh, we have two pieces of work recently. So Dara Cohn, who's a U.S. political science scholar, she has done some work on this and about women's role in the enactment of sexual violence in Liberia. Um, and Laura Schoberg has a book on women as wartime rapists as well. Um, and they're both excellent pieces of research. And these are, you know, just new in the last year or so. So I think this is becoming an issue and you'll get some, um, some research on that. Um, so with the multilateral system... Um, I think if I understand your question correctly, yeah, so how the, the narratives are experienced by the individual, is that it? Yeah. And, yeah, um, but sort of the system doesn't have one voice, right? But right. The system has multiple. Has one, yeah. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting about that, that and I, you may have observations on this yourself, I worked in the humanitarian system. Um, what's interesting right now, of course, is that the, and I'm doing some work with some international organizations who want to run courses on gender-based violence, and the GBV of the humanitarian world seems to be very different than the sexual violence of the Security Council world. Right, so you have this divorce happening between the two. So the security actors have their definition of sexual violence. It has to look like this. The GBV people are not necessarily mapping into that framework. And so as a woman, do I need to, if I'm on the ground and I want to get recourse, what language do I need to speak to what actor to actually access those services? And I think we're really complicating matters by the way that we're dichotomizing at the kind of global level. And one kind of, I don't know if this is actually answering your question, but one thing sprung to mind when I was in Liberia, talking to a service provider, a Liberian, very experienced, brilliant Liberian um, service provider who was working on domestic violence with an international NGO and providing services. And she, actually Timor, this came up, in both contexts, women talked about the issue of what they call abandonment, the same word that they used in both contexts where after the conflict, there seems to be a breakdown in social norms, changes to family structures. There's a loosening of what had been disciplined in terms of the marital relationship and arrangement. And women were finding that they were being abandoned by their husbands. And this, of course, in, in these contexts, left these women caring as single-headed households for their families without male support, um, in a social perspective as well as a practical monetary perspective. And they classified that as a harm. Right? And one of the things I do in the book is use the word harm because 
harm is something I define for myself. The system defines violence for me, right? So when I talk about this, my abandonment is a harm. And this um, service provider was arguing to headquarters in New York saying, we have to deal with abandonment as a form of gender-based violence, or GBV, because that's the language that they were using. And New York told her, no, that's not in the definition of GBV. That's not included. It's not a form of GBV. And she's a Liberian woman listening to Liberian women saying, no, we're saying it is. (laughs) And that is our experience of harm. And we want that captured under this framework. But the international system said no. So if I'm a woman who is experiencing abandonment, and that's how I articulate this, where do I go? If the only services available are saying no, that's not, that doesn't fit here. So, so that is happening right now, you know. Um, in terms of methodology, Diane, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so qualitative methods. I... Um, Basically, the the kind of approach was the case study approach, as I said, and a comparative analysis across the three contexts. And I did two kind of strands. One was of of semi-structured interviews. So altogether, I did 77 interviews across the three contexts. Um, I coded them in Envivo then for the different themes and pulled out the themes. And as I said, I was interested in the violence rather than the case study context itself, if you like. And then I did significant archival work um, in all three contexts where I could, I went to, I mean, I was in elbow deep in boxes, particularly in Northern Ireland, where we didn't have much documentation of, of these issues earlier. And I took that documentation plus the primary data and put that together for the substantive kind of findings piece and then kind of triangulated. Because there's a lot of, you know, the thing I forgot to mention with the, the truth processes and international criminal courts, what we see now in the last decade or so is that the primary sites of documentation of violence against women are true transitional justice processes. So the testimonies and, um, at the International Criminal Court and the ad hoc tribunals, the truth commissions, these are the greatest sites of production of knowledge on violence against women. So I used those, but I was careful about them because they're using a framing to start with. They're not starting from where women might articulate it. So it was... Um, interviews, archival work, and then mapping out themes and kind of um, writing through that way. um, One of the critical challenges I had was that I wanted primarily, as someone who had worked with women and girls, to sit down and obviously hear stories. Um, We have a debate, of course, around the ethics of interviewing victims um, of of violence and a real kind of consideration of the cost-benefit of doing that for the purposes of a PhD, etc. And so we really kind of toyed around with that um, at the time. And ultimately, a decision was made that I wouldn't interview victims, if you like, but that I would do a secondary methodology, which was to interview service providers. So in some sense, I felt very compromised as a practitioner and as a researcher at the time that I did have the ability and skills to work with women, but I couldn't guarantee services for women in some remote areas, say, in, in, Northern Ar- in Liberia and other places. And so I interviewed service providers who told me their secondhand stories, so that's obviously open to inter- their interpretation, and I was very mindful of that. Um, but in the end, I think it demonstrates another way to do this method on violence against women and in a safe way um, that still gets us some rich documentation um, and allows us to hear stories from kind of people who are working on this every day if you like. Um, And then Darfur. So I didn't specifically research Darfur for this, and just to note that I worked there for a year back in um, 2006, so it's some time ago. Um, And, you know, the issue of whether Islam Islam or or whatever it might be, I mean, every culture has its own understandings, right, of how we make sense of of violence and how we use violence to communicate with each other. Um, Obviously, there were challenges specifically in Darfur with... um, 
Zina, right, so the understanding of how we define sexual violence as an act of adultery, right, outside of marriage. And that was obviously a distinctive dynamic to a setting like that that has that kind of belief system. Um, and so that provide, made it very difficult to provide services because women couldn't come forward to say, I've been raped because they'll be charged with adultery, even if they were never married, right? Um, and so that is, is very distinctive there. And so then how do you provide services, and of course we had to do it in a very covert um, and safe way because of the political situation, but because of the way the law operated. Um, and that's difficult then, I think, in the latter part of your question about how do we engage women and get them to be able to um, tell their stories in this way. Um, and, you know, I had one experience in Darfur, which I've written about elsewhere, where we were being more protective of women to not reveal what was happening because of fears of retribution from the state. Um, but they approached me and said, actually, we want to go public. We want to talk about this. We will take this risk on. And it's, our lives are so bad, it can't get any worse if the state does kind of come and, and you know, disappear us or whatever. Um, so I think there's this tension because in an idealistic fashion, in a very idealistic feminist fashion, you want women to have the space to articulate those harms and determine what a transition may look like. Um, but there is a certain level of language needed and how do we deal with this tension um, that exists really for how women want to say this is my harm but to speak to a system that they want to respond to them and get a transition to enable the kinds of changes that they want in their lives you know and often we, our systems are focusing on you know quite predetermined and defined civil and political rights we're ignoring economic harms we're ignoring the very basics of the practical needs that women have in their lives so I think that's something we really need to spend more time on. Thank you. Uh, we've probably got, yeah, just about three or four more minutes, so we'll just take a couple more, and then up at the back, oh, middle. <laughs> Hi, good evening. I'm Anita Williams. I work for War Child. Um, thank you very much for your presentations. I was actually interested in your peace agreement, so actually this um, <laughs> question really is for you, Christine Bell. Um, I was wondering, with the um, implementation of 1325, did you see a correlation between the fact that women were involved in the development of the peace agreements and the fact that there was a greater number of gender-specific provisions in it? And if so, were they peace agreements that were more sustainable? The other question was related to 1325, that it's women and youth that ought to be at the peace table. I have no example of where that was been included and perhaps in your, in your mapping whether you had come across that and that would be really interesting because of course we're talking about violence against women and girls mm -hmm. and not just women. Thank you. Thank you. And there was one in the front, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll take this. just these two more and then sort of fairly brief replies. Thank you. Uh, thanks. I'm Lisa Gormley from uh, the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at LSE. Um, I just wondered, um, even though you, you've just talked very clearly about how you talk mainly to service providers or, or wholly to service providers, whether you had any really uh, interesting new insights on what are the kind of services that women survivors of violence and girl survivors of violence are really looking for and what we need to do to change things, particularly for health, not just sexual and reproductive health, but mental health too. Yeah. Thank you. And there was one more here, I think. I'll come to you. And then last one. Hi, I'm a MA trend and development student from IDS, and I just wanted to ask, in your opinion, what role, if any, does the International Criminal Court play in tackling gender-based violence in conflict? Sorry, the International Agreement? Uh, International Criminal Court. I see, oh, right. 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 
Okay, uh, Christine, would you like to go first, and then we'll hand over to Ashleen for the last, um, so, and fairly briefly now. Yes, just very quickly on the peace agreement point. Um, we don't see vastly greater, it's very hard to get proper data on what women were at the table, and also actually what being at the table means is, is a little bit complicated. So there's not a vast amount of ex extra women getting at the table, but there are a lot of different ways that women influence what is agreed at the table. Um, the, there definitely is a statistically significant rise in number of references to women in peace agreements post-1325. Um, on youth, we have actually coded for, for children and youth. Um, I mentioned to that, um, and you can correlate that with gender. Um, actually, youth is something we deal really badly with. We also coded just out of interest for men and boys, just to see, and there's really hardly any references to gender. I know it sounds funny, but if somebody said to me, why don't you coding for women and not men and boys? I thought, okay, you're right. We code every reference to men and boys. It's all gender-neutral language. And to my surprise, there's not really any gender-specific um, treatment of even child soldiers in terms of male and masculinities. I'm sure that will change. There's only six references in the whole corpus to LGBTI uh, agreements, and two of those are negative in, in that they're, out, they're um, bringing in new laws against homosexuality. So again, there's sort of quite a lot of things that people are raising, these processes that are only beginning to get in when we think about gender in a broader way. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, so I'll start, I think, Three with Lisa. minutes. Yeah, okay, I'll be brief. With Lisa's question around services. Um, thanks, Lisa. Uh, you just maybe just something kind of came back to me um, from a context which I think illustrates a lot about the power of, of services and the kind of services that you provide in um, Liberia and in Monrovia MSF were providing sexual violence response services and it was really interesting how I, I talked with the doctor there who's a psychologist and he talked about how when they went around in the clinics, when people were, women were lining up for regular health services and reproductive health services, they had a staff member talking to them about sexual violence, just encouraging reporting, etc., to come forward. And there was a direct prompt response from women actually coming in then and reporting sexual violence. But what he found, and this was, I mean, at least five, six, seven years after the end of the conflict, a lot of the women coming in were women who had experienced sexual violence during the conflict. It wasn't yesterday, last month, last week, it was, it was during the conflict. And what he kind of surmised was that it was the first time they got to talk about it. And that even though they were coming in, it was too late, obviously, for you know, the um, rape kit service provision, for forensics, for anything like that. It was a salve for them to come in and say, this has happened to me, and for the acknowledgement to happen. And he talked about how they provided services to women to obviously physically check them out, but provide more of a process whereby this was acknowledged. And I mean, I think this speaks to the power of and the utility of transitional justice mechanisms and the importance of processes to deal with the past and acknowledgement of the truth of those experiences. But often, you know, in a practical level, we have the need for, I think, economic support for women, for sure. That, again, it's back to what's the context of these women who are reporting. If you're reporting in, in a place where you're practically, you don't have a roof over your head or to send your kids to school, you need help with, economic, with the economics of that. But the more strategic end of things then for women is this acknowledgement of that, that my bodily integrity has been violated. And who provides that acknowledgement to me if these services are not available? whether it's during the conflict 10 years ago, and the same in Timor-Leste, where 
um, uh, with the reparations process and an attempt at that, that women 10 years later were saying, OK, I'm ready now. I'm ready to talk about the sexual violence. They weren't ready right after the conflict. They were too busy making sure their children were alive and finding them and putting their homes back together and putting a roof on their house. Then they had time to talk about themselves and think about themselves later. So we need to think about those services not just as, yes, of course, emergency response to rape. Of course, we all know that. But you know, it may be that there's another form of that that's necessary as well for healing to take place. And then just briefly on the role of the ICC. Right, um, so this is a huge question. Um, the, the International Criminal Court, of course, is such an important development. Um, and Christine, I'm speaking about this in front of Christine Chinkin, I mean, and Christine Bell, in terms of international law. Um, yeah, so we've had a couple of cases now come out. Um, they've been a long time in coming. Um, and so, you know, the Lubanga and other cases have um, failed to acknowledge sexual violence and sexual crimes. Um, you know, and as we talk about kind of the idea of harm and women articulating that themselves, there is still a need to have a formal legal process that um, adjudicates the crime. And that's the framework that we're within right now. So a lot of people would, I don't know what your opinions, would critique, obviously, the, the role of the ICC and what it's achieved. But at the same time, it sends a signal, right, about this issue of impunity and the need for the criminal adjudication and prosecution of specific kinds of crimes. The challenge we still have is that even though we've had lessons learned from ICTY, ICTR, the Special Court in Sierra Leone, and otherwise on specific gendered crimes, the ICC still kind of hasn't picked up the learning from those and made sure that the approach to, to indictment, to prosecution, the creation of evidence, and the presentation of evidence is learning from those processes so that there isn't failures for the victims of sexual violence that could come forward. So I certainly think that, you know, it has a role, but you want it to pick up on the legacy of the other tribunals a bit more and have that cross-fertilization across the courts, which hasn't necessarily happened, I think. Thank yeah. you. I think we could go on a lot longer, but we are out of time. Um, so two or three just further announcements. Um, we've got two more events at the centre this week. We've got a very busy week for the first week of term. Um, so tomorrow we have a reception to launch a new research report um, essentially on displacement and women's economic empowerment, voices of displaced women in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. And um, there'll be a discussion of the report that's been done in conjunction with Women for Women International and Gender Action for Peace and Security, and also an opportunity to see a short film featuring women's voices um, from that area of Iraq. And then on Friday, we have a visiting senior fellow at the Centre, Professor Laura Shepherd, who will speak on countering violence, countering extremism, women, peace and security agenda in service of countering violent extremism. You're all welcome. We'd be delighted to see you. And time, place, etc. are all available on the website. There's a reception outside, so I won't keep you any longer. Again, you're all invited. Opportunity to buy the book, and I suspect Ashlyn will sign some of the copies. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs>